and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars pod and the second instalment. And don't worry, this isn't going to turn into like a Napoleon's Waterloo Army style odyssey. But we are here for a second instalment on Polish troops in the French army, because I don't know how to be concise as a podcast host. And I'm not prepared to cut my guests off because why limit quality discussion? So I am joined once again by David Graylick, who... I spoke to all of about 30 seconds ago uh, for the first instalment of this. If you haven't listened to instalment one, go back, enjoy it. Remember, all of the podcasting content is free for you to enjoy now. So you've just got to scroll back and find it. It's not that hard. Um, David, if you've forgotten since the last instalment, is a PhD researcher at the University of Adam Mickiewicz uh, University. University of Adam Mickiewicz or University or Adam Mickiewicz University. Either way, that place in Poznan in Poland, he's part of the Faculty of History there. He has an interest in military history from the 18th and 19th centuries. And as you know, is particularly an expert on uh, Polish troops during the Napoleonic Wars. His PhD thesis is on the officer corps in the Duchy of Warsaw Army. Um, still got our fingers crossed for you that that goes smoothly and that very soon you will be Dr. Greylick. Welcome back, David. Great to see you. Thank you for giving up your time for an extended recording session that this has turned into. <laughs> yeah, hello there. No problem. <laughs> so we're going to bury our faces back deep in the, the nitty gritty of this. Um, folks, I haven't got time to do a recap of everything that we talked to but we predominantly did kind of the social side of things in the first half i think in this side we're going to get a little bit more narrative uh, with things and i want to start in and it's a horrendously broad question the way it's written in the notes um with their service history kind of where do these guys go and what do they do now you did make the point in the break it's 18 years of conflict zach you can't cover every single thing and quite rightly so. And we'll talk about Spain, I guess, in due course. But just give folks a flavour of where some of these troops are deployed and perhaps some major flashpoints where there are particularly famous examples or uh, particularly noteworthy examples of what these guys are doing. Yeah, so like like you said, there is uh, 18 years of the service record of this unit. So I just say a few words about each unit. In fact, because we we didn't say that there were several Polish units in the French army, um, both revolutionary and imperial. Um, so I will say formation after formation. So the first formation uh, were Polish legions in Italy, commanded by Jan Henryk Dąbrowski, uh, which are quite famous in Poland because um, we've got uh, Polish anthem, Mazurek Dąbrowski, right, which were created um, during that legendary period. And in fact, these legions started uh, the service in uh, 1797 and at first time they fought against some Italian rebels uh, in Italy then they fought in the war against the kingdom of Naples and they distinguished they were distinguished for example uh, in the battle of Civita Castellana um, and they uh, and then they some they had some other things in Italy uh, they fought about uh, they fought versus uh, the Naples, they fought against uh, the Papal State, for example. Um, 
And uh, after the war against the second coalition started, they retreated to the, the northern Italy. Um, they fought in the Battle of Trebia, for example, when they had uh, heavy losses um, during that battle. Uh, and uh, next couple of months, they, they, they still fight uh, in Italy until the Treaty of Lunéval was established. The other formation was the Danube Legion, which was created in 1799, and it was commanded by Jadar Karuknezevich. And this unit was part of the Army of the Rhine, commanded by General Jean-Victor Moreau. So they took part in the German campaign of 1800. For example, they had quite a big role in the Battle of Hohenlinden in December 1800. And after that, they continued until this campaign was over. And uh, after um, after this treaty of Venable situation was quite tough from the Poles um, because the French couldn't give any more support to the Polish cause. There was many resignations and desertions from the legions. And uh, there was some kind of reorganization of the Polish units. And there was creations of three uh, half brigades of the French army, which had uh, numbers of the of the, of the French um, French infantry, and there was a cavalry um, regiment, which was in fact saved uh, thanks to to Mira, who wanted to have Polish um, cavalry regiment. Um, Mira doing something right for once, huzzah! Yeah, yeah, but you 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 know, um, in Poland we've got in major we've got a good opinion about Mira, so. Yes, but we it's become a running joke on this show in terms of my opinions on Mura, which I know, remain you know, unmoved, you know, you know, but... you know, I think that Mura would be a great king of Poland if he if Napoleon would would give gave him a Polish throne. Um sorry, pause everything that we're all doing right now. We've got to ask why? Because the the whole being king of Naples thing wasn't I mean, it wasn't disaster, but it wasn't brilliant either. And loyalty was a big problem when it came to Murat. So, so what's the yeah, reason? Yeah, but but, but but you know, he was a king in Polish style. You know, cavalry man, brave, uh, like to like to look well. So, but that would have meant like Caroline as he as... He, had, he he had very good relations with Poniatowski. Yeah, that that is, that is true. Actually, yes. That is true, um, but that would have meant like Caroline as as queen, and I I oh that that's a thought that just makes me shudder. Um, I would not want to be the subject of Caroline Bonaparte. Did, I just did, I, did I did I trigger you? That's exactly what you did. Um, yeah, the the shivers running down my spine at the prospect of that. Okay, um, so David's vote is that Mura should have been king of Poland. Um, Interesting sidebar there. Um, we'll park that. And sorry, you, I, I did interrupt you midway through your flow. We can, um, we can, on... we can make, we can make a discussion about it. About yeah. Mira in Poland. <laughs> Absolutely, that that's a whole other time. <laughs> yeah, there is an episode in there somewhere about who should have been on the thrones of which country and and who would have been the best um, within each capacity. Because let's be honest, Napoleon doesn't well no that's not quite fair sometimes he does get it right in terms of who he puts on the thrones but joseph yeah. of spain was the wrong move 
beyond a shadow mm. of doubt and and Muro Maybe, in Naples yeah. I think Muro in Naples perhaps is more something that you can judge in hindsight but anyway we digress massively uh, so we were talking about the service history of these different Polish units let me hand it back to you and um, let me finish let me allow you to finish what you were saying about these different guys and, and where they go yeah, so um, so like I said, there was a big reorganization of the Polish legions. So there were three infantry regiments or half brigades uh, and one cavalry regiment. And two of these infantry regiments were sent to San Domingo when it was uh, a rebellion of the local people against the French. Uh, we know that this campaign was very brutal and the losses of the Poles were very heavy. So most of them were killed, in fact, or taken prisoner. Um, the interesting thing is that the first uh, Haiti constitution said that only Polish, uh, Poles and German could have uh, Haitian citizenship because there was several examples uh, of the Polish deserters during, during that campaign. So only several hundred uh, people uh, returned to France after the, after this campaign, um, and uh, after that um, we've got uh, this um, campaign uh, in Italy, which was part of the war with that coalition. We've got these uh, fights against uh, British forces in uh, southern Italy when fought uh, this Polish uh, infantry regiment. And after that, we've got this entrance of the Grundarmee to the Polish lands during the war against the Fourth Coalition. And there was um, a decision to uh, move this uh, two regiments, so infantry and cavalry regiments, to Silesia. So now it's a part of Poland, but that, in that time it was part of Russia. So it wasn't, there wasn't Polish, Polish lands that, in that time. And they fought in the Silesia. Uh, especially cavalry regiment is uh, distinguished in several clashes against the Prussian cavalry. Uh, and after that, uh, these units were reorganized uh, another time, and uh, the Polish-Italian legion was established, but uh, after several months, it was renamed on Vistula legion. Um, and this legion became part of the French army and they were sent to Spain and they fought um, They fought in Spain um, in two groups. One group was infantry and the second one was uh, cavalry um, and infantry took, uh, they fought in the siege of Saragossa. Um, we know that there was, uh, there, were, there were tough fights during that siege. Uh, so, so, so Poles uh, were there, and after that, they became part of the Siche Corps and they fought during the campaign, his campaign in Andalusia, and also they fought about uh, against uh, Spanish partisans. And the Poles, in fact, were, were quite quite good in it. Um, and uh, but more famous regiment was, of course, this uh, Vistula Ulan um, regiment. And their most, uh, the most uh, important and famous battle was Battle of Aguera in 1811, when they crashed the Colborne's Brigade. Um, and this was the only example when the British Square were broken, in fact, during the Peninsula War. So the Poles did it, the on, only Poles. Uh, and of, and Poles captured some, uh, some British banners uh, also, and probably 
also they were the only British panels which were lost during the whole uh, Peninsula War. Um, in fact, this this reputation of the Vistalans was quite big. They they were called Los Infernos Picadores by the Spaniards, so lances from hell, for example. And also they were very respected by the French commanders, and every French commander wanted to have some Polish Ulan units in the in the in their divisional slash corps. Um, and they fought uh, in um, in uh, in uh, in Spain by a few years. Um, and of course, in Spain, they also were Polish Chevalier because this regiment was created in 1807, and they were sent to Spain also. Uh, and of course, it got this uh, Samosera charge, uh, which about uh, I said uh, in our last episode, uh, which was in fact the most famous episode for this regiment. Mm, and after after that, they stayed in Spain for some time, but they were sent several months later to Austria to the war against this country in 1809. And they participated in the battle program, and I also described this uh, uh, this clash against the Austrian Ulans, which took place during that battle. Um, and uh, for um, the Polish formations, the most important campaign was in fact campaign of 1812, because um, most of these units were retreated to France and they sent it to the east. Um, so, so. Um, Polish Chevalier fought in this campaign, and also Vistula um, Legion also fought in this campaign and had heavy losses. Uh, interesting fact is that during this campaign, Vistula um, Legion was um, part of the Imperial, Imperial Guard, so it shows that this, um, this unit were respected by the French. Um, and of course, uh, both Chevalier and the Vistula region fought in several battles, like um, uh, like Berezina, for example, because they fought mainly during the retreat. Um, and uh, after that, they also fought in the uh, campaign in Germany in 1813, um, because during that campaign, in fact, the Vistula uh, Legion infantry was Reorganized into one regiment because of the losses during the Russian campaign, uh, and they were part of the Polish Eighth Corps. Uh, so it was the only time when when the commander went in fact Prince Poniatowski, and they fought all in several battles, also also in the Battle of Leipzig. Chevalier regiment also, uh, they fought uh, they fought in the Battle of Leipzig. They fought in the Battle of Kanau also when they had quite big role. Uh, to open uh, to open the route to Napoleon to France, um, and uh, in fact during the campaign of 1813 there was also a Polish guard battalion, which was uh, established in autumn 1813, um, and this battalion uh, fought also in that campaign mostly uh, in the Battle of Leipzig, and uh, after this battle the battalion was in fact disbanded. Because of the losses and because of the desertions which took place after uh, after that battle, and Poles of course fought also in um, campaign of uh, 1814 in France in several battles. Uh, some one of the Polish officers wrote that uh, the Polish soldiers were like dogs during that campaign that they 
fought from battle to battle. Um, so, so they had several battles during that campaign. And there was also this Polish Eclair regiment, that, like, I, like I said, they, they also fought in that campaign. Um, and uh, the last campaign for the Poles was campaign of 1815 in Belgium, because there was a Polish squadron uh, of Chevrolet, which was uh, with Napoleon uh, on Elba, uh, Elba Island. And they, of course, they came back with Napoleon to France and they became a uh, first squadron of the first Chevrolet regiment. And they fought in this campaign, of course, in the Battle of Waterloo. We've got this episode even in Bondarchuk's movie, right? And this clash between uh, Polish Chevrolet and uh, and the British cavalry. But interesting thing is that the Polish losses uh, in that battle wasn't very high. There was only few few men killed and wounded in that battle. So probably these fights um, wasn't very tough from the Poles, and they didn't fight very much during that battle. And that's it. Eighteen years of fights. I mean, thank you for giving us such an admirable and clear run through of everything. I'm trying to think where they're brigaded um, for the Waterloo campaign and therefore where they're at. And it escapes me off the top of my head. Apologies, folks. I would have to consult my my guiding notes um, and my order of battle to know that. I just don't have it off the top of my head. Yeah, but, but they were there. They were there. Indeed. The Indeed. Um, you mentioned Spain. Well, this is this is a show that is known for its um its love of talking about the the Peninsula yeah. War. Um, and you you teased me. Let's be honest. You laid some bait, and you mentioned that discipline was something that was worth talking about in relation to Spain. Yeah. Um, so talk us through this because I I don't know what you're about to tell me. All I know is that you gave me this pointer that there is some interesting stuff to talk about here. So yeah. hit me. Yeah. You know, in general, the relationship between Poles and Spaniards during the Peninsula War was very complicated. It was a mixture of mutual respect, fear and hatred, in fact. The situation related to the Polish presence in Spain was, in a way, quite bizarre, because the nation fighting for its freedom, the Poles were fighting against the nation that wanted to defend its freedom, the Spaniards, right? Um, this caused the Spaniards to even have a threat of propaganda aimed at the Poles, which isolated cases of Polish soldiers um, deserting, being known. Um, what strongly influenced Polish-Spanish uh, relations was the fact that both Poles and Spaniards were Catholics, and they still are, in fact, um, in theory. Maybe... Spaniards? I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah still, still both. Um, well, I can't speak for how deeply Catholic uh, Poland is, but I get the sense that it is a pretty Catholic country. Yeah, um, but, and Spain is still a deeply Catholic yeah. country, albeit. Yeah, that, but, you know. but but for the Napoleonic era, it was, it was very true. Um, while the French were seen as anti antichrists by uh, the Spaniards and enemies of the faith, in general, the posts weren't so hated also because of their faith. There is a well-known example of the Polish overseer who was saved from death by a medallion with the Virgin Mary that Spanish soldiers noticed. Um, however, the, it doesn't mean that the relations were exemplary. 
There are known cases of assaults on outposts and villages occupied by police soldiers, as well as, um, I don't know how to say it, secret killings by Spaniards. Also, during the charge of Somosierra, Andrzej Nikolewski received many wounds, including after he was excluded from the battle. Um, the Poles also had their, let's call it, faults, so to speak. Um, they certainly took part in the excesses during the Second Siege of Zaragoza, as I, like I said. And uh, there are also known cases of reprisals uh, taken against Spaniards from attacks on Polish troops. Several officers were even brought um, before court martial. One of these was Captain Marcin Notkevich of the 1st Infantry Regiment of the Vistula Legion. In fact, he was a very good officer, decorated with the Legion d'Honneur. Uh, and in 1811, while being a commander in the village of Flix, he was accused of robbery and arrested. And then there was uh, a commission created so-called Commission d'Enquête in French, which found, which found this guy guilty. However, he didn't stand trial as he had previously obtained his resignation. Um, another example is Lieutenant Stanislav Skarbek of the 2nd Infantry Regiment of the Vistula Legion. He was accused of having, of having abused the population of his own gain and commander on... He was just accused of robbery and or, and other things, and in his case there was a court martial, and he was dismissed from service in March 1812. But interesting thing is that quite quickly in July July of the same year he had already been accepted for service in the general staff of the Grand Army, so his break wasn't so so long. Hold up a second. Um, two things. Firstly, these guys are getting charged with robbery. Yeah. Have they heard of somebody called Juno? Because, you know, or, <laughs> or Victor, or, you know, insert the names of a whole host of French commanders, senior commanders, um, who have no qualms in lining their pockets in what is quite frankly robbery and you can't dress it up any other way and yet this guy gets tried for it either he managed to accumulate a king's ransom in fortune or he was incredibly unlucky interesting that they are trying uh, guys for robbery not least because the french army is having to live off the land so how the hell do you differentiate between oh i was taking this food because i'm entitled to it um, and then PS found a bag of coins, just like the British do. Um, or, and, and, you know, the, the, the other option, which I suppose is aggravated robbery, you might say. No, that's not a technical legal term, folks, but you know what I mean. That kind of sense of you're taking stuff and you're probably beating up a civilian in the process. Um, the, the hypocrisy rings true. What I also found really interesting from what you said, though, was the similarity, actually, with what you see in the British system, whereby if you resign your commission, you can escape punishment. And in fact, in the British system, you can escape trial. So really interesting that that parallel exists. Um, a little nugget that just immediately mm. piqued my interest because I don't often get the chance to yeah, speak I mean, to people who have it, knowledge. It, it, of... it, can, it can be even a research question if, if, if it was 
popular in general during the period. Mm, that's that's exactly where I'm what I'm thinking. Obviously, it's only one isolated example, but it was certainly a phenomenon in the British Army, um, and it suggests that perhaps this is a um, an approach that is is pan-european let's say um but yeah. more research needed on that yeah. before we can make any any uh, assessments um yeah it's it's an interesting one it, and i'm interested i hadn't really considered the point that you were making but it is a very good point that here is a nation fighting sorry a group of nationals polish nationals who are fighting for the independence of their nation and in the process they're doing that by suppressing the independence of another nation it must have caused some ideological issues for those who yeah. pause to really consider it yeah. do we have any indication of how they sort of squared this circle was it a case of you know well necessity the enemy of my enemy and and the the friend of my enemy and, and all the rest of it you know we can you can find some i don't know like letters from spain with when we can find some, I don't know, compassion to the Spaniards that this situation is, uh, is isn't morally clean, of course, mm -hmm. right? That we are, our case, we want to fight our independence, but we are fighting against people who wanted to defend their independence. And that that's why um, there was a censorship made, made by the French, that there was a censorship of letters. Uh, which were which were sent from Spain to the Dutch of Warsaw, for example. Uh, so that so we can find um, whole group of um, whole group of sources, which is in the French archives nowadays in Vincennes, which is in fact a correspondence uh, took by the French censorship, because they knew that the post uh, sent the letters when they when they wrote that the situation isn't isn't like uh, the press uh, the press said because the war was presented in uh, spain uh, like any other war that there that there are some enemies that there are some spaniards some 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 also british and, and and things like that but it's a war like the other wars right and from these letters, we can say that this situation wasn't so, so so clear. And um, you know, you know, the Polish officers and soldiers had their own mind, and they saw mm. what they saw, right? That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, inevitably, they're going to have the, the problem. The, the, the other things was was the reception of this war. I think that the Poles, I mean, in the Dutch, they could have some notes that that the about the brutality of the Peninsula War and stuff like that, but it wasn't it it wasn't a thing which was discussed publicly, I think, um, and which and which wasn't uh, you know known by the most of the pop popular opinion in in the Dutch. That is fascinating. Um, on on many levels, not least the censorship thing. I wasn't aware that letters were censored. Do you happen to know if this is something that was done across the French army? Is this unique to Spain or is this something that is happening generally where letters from the front are kind of going through a filtering system before they're sent on? 
I think that was a, a system in the, in the in France in that time that there was um uh, a specialized um I don't know how to name it um a special a special a special organization to do it to to check uh, to check uh, correspondence. And is was all that correspondence? Apologies, I'm I'm throwing a lot of unfair questions at you now, as this sort of the potential of this really excites my brain. Um, but I guess, firstly, has that that material survived? Is there a lot of this stuff that folks can dig into in the French army, and and has anybody done that? Because that's a fascinating pool of resources and of course yeah. it, it it stands in very stark contrast to the british system yeah there is yeah there is an article in polish wrote by um dr antonio Wagner about about it and i and i have my information from that article that this censorship took place and that the materials about it are in the french archives this this letter fascinating um i can well imagine listeners kind of going oh hello that's something to go and dive into because inevitably surviving letters from the front are are hard to come by um and that that sounds like a fascinating resource folks yeah, if you've got any yeah, more in... the, yeah, there is there is interesting thing because um some part of these letters are in the um, part of the archive called donation d'avou so it's uh, after so the papers after after, after marshal d'avou and the interesting thing that I wanted to have a, have an access to that part of the archive, but it but it seems that it's a, a private property, and I need to have a special a special approval for this. So I so I so I didn't an, analyze it yet, but I want to do it. Mm, to do it absolutely. Yeah, that would be fascinating work um, to look at obviously the, the the letters for the polish troops but to just look more broadly there are there's at least one book to be written there that is a project waiting to happen if somebody's listening to this kind of thinking where do i want to go next um the value of that as a resource is is endlessly fascinating to me and i'm now hugely peeved that my french is not up to the standard of delving into that because that would be such a fantastic resource to to look into apologies we i have rabbit hold um you fired one hell of a neuron uh in my brain there let's talk about reputation um my sense is that some of these guys have a really fearsome reputation i'm thinking particularly polish lancers we we've kind of talked about them already um the Brits aren't. The Brits hate lancers. Period. <laughs> um, That's why they created the lancers themselves after after eighteen fifteen. <laughs> indeed, they they suffered too hard, too severely, too funny, many fu- times. Funny, funny thing is that they used Polish reg- regulations, which tells you something. I, I'm yeah. Apologies. This is a, a very self indulgent and very Anglo indulgent thing. But do we, before we talk about you know that re- that reputation and why they have such a fearsome reputation, do we have much of a sense of British views on Polish troops and Polish views on British troops? Because uh, I know that will interest the um, sort of forty or percent of my listenership that is British. Oh, it's, it's a good question. To be honest, to be to be honest, uh, I don't know. Uh, I didn't I didn't research it. Um, 
I know as far as far as far as I know, Poles have a good opinion on British Army, um, because of its effectiveness, I think. Um, and British about Poles, to be honest, I don't know. But I think I think that things like creation of the lances in the British Army after 1815 shows that they have a respect for mm, for, for the Poles. Definitely. I mean, it's hard not to after Albuera, but Albuera is such a bloodbath. Um, yeah. And and there's so much finger pointing that goes on. You know, that it's both doing this uh, only things uh, for the British, you know, losing, losing, losing standards, uh, breaking squares and things like that, right? I, I've said it many a time. If you want a job done well, consider asking somebody from Poland to do it because... <laughs> you guys have a yeah, reputation you know, for getting things done. Fun, yeah, fun fact is that some I don't know British historians want to underrate uh, this Polish success. That I don't know there are some memoirs and some historiography which says, for example, that Polish lances were drunk during that charge. For example, um, I don't know that uh, the Cobbles Brigade was unprepared or something that uh, there was so. Gunpowder smoke among the battlefield, uh, the part of the battlefield that uh, uh, when uh, the Commons Brigade was and things like that. But not being funny though, but gunpowder smoke on a battlefield. Wow, I'm I'm staggered by that revelation. This is literally the story of battlefields. Uh, give you an example. Yeah, they did a reenactment of Waterloo that had like ten thousand um, guys involved in it, and after an hour. The people watching literally didn't have a clue what the hell was going on yeah. because those ten thousand guys yeah. had produced so much gunpowder smoke that yeah. it was everything was invisible. So yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, so, so, the... so, so, yeah, some of some of my colleagues took part in that reenactment and they said, right, there, 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 there's so much true that there's yeah. some there was so many problems with with it on, on that battlefield, right? Communication in the Napoleonic Wars. This is this is whole topic. It is. It really is. Um, and there are books being written in part uh, about that. Um, but yeah, um, the Brit in me is not remotely surprised that some folks are sort of come out and and sort of pointed to mitigating factors. I'm sure there are some mitigating factors, but at the same time, it does not change the fact that these Polish troops pulled off something that. Um, troops singularly failed to do uh, throughout the conflict. Um, but back to the the reputation. Why? I'm. Re- I hesitate to say. You know, is it as simple as these guys fought harder? Because that implies that the French troops didn't fight exceptionally hard time and time again. They obviously did, but the the Polish troops seem to have a particular level of respect reserved for them that I feel is probably maybe a st- only a step down from the the respect that the Imperial Guard receives. Certainly that's my impression, and it's not a well-informed impression. I would be the first to say that, and folks will no doubt be posting on forums going, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, yeah, you know, if you haven't worked that out by now, then happy days. Um but I, I, that's the feeling I get. What, what's your sense of where these guys are, are rated in terms of the troops that serve um, the French during the French cause during this period? 
And why why is it that the Polish do have this reputation for being particularly good? You know, I think uh, I think that uh, these units have um, its reputation because they were just effective on the battlefield, right? Um, and uh, the, the the best uh, example to analyze are both Vistula Ulans and Chabolager, because because you know um, I'm always saying that Ulans, Chabolager, Lances, name it, name it uh, uh, as you want, are a very specific, well, very specific um, type of units, um, mostly because of their weapon, right, Lance. This, this type of weapon was, in fact, forgotten in uh, Western Europe in the second half of the 18th century. And, in fact, it came back thanks to the Poles, um, because it's, in fact, uh, much more Eastern, Eastern European uh, type of weapon, right, which uh, came back on the battlefields because of the Poles. Um, in fact, uh, in fact, this... Um, Polish legionary um, cavalry regiment. After that, uh, Vistula Ulans were the only regiment in the French army which used uh, lances until 1811. And because of the Polish successes, uh, the French created their own Chevalier units. And the Polish uh, NCOs and officers were instructors in these regiments, mostly. Um, you know, I said a few words about Polish successes. Somosierra, Aguera, uh, Waterloo also, we can say. Uh, I don't know, Bagram. Uh, for infantry, it would be Spain, of course. Uh, uh, fights uh, in uh, Suchescopes. Uh, Berezina for infantry also. Um, so, so, so many successes, right? And to and to analyze uh, and to analyze um, the reasons for the success successes, for cavalry, of course, we can say that it was um, a combined of um, of equipment, of training, also also of tact of tactics. Um, you know, you you know, um, lance is a very specific type of weapon. It's this type of weapon which is very hard to master, and but when you master it. You are very tough to uh, it's tough to defeat you, right? Um, there is a Polish historian who wrote that um, that a good lancer would beat good swordsman, but but um, but lancer would be defeated by bad swordsman. And this is uh, this, this is this is, and there is something in in that uh, in that opinion, I think. Um, if you if you if you analyze, for example, uh, regulations, there is a regulations published by uh, Count Krasinski in eighteen eleven, uh, and and its uh, uh, and its regulations how to use how it's in fact a manual how to use a lance, and there are few uh, portraits in the regulations when you can find several figures and so and you can find some of the figures to be very, I don't know. Effective, um, but in this sense that it looks weird, but in fact it's it's hard to do it. But on the battlefield, it can be very effective. Um, and Poles just just were master of, of that type of weapons, and uh, you know it's 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 it was a simple advantage on the battlefield. You know because this lance had uh, I don't know 
uh, two meters fifty, for example, or something like that, and it's uh, advantage uh, advantage of this weapon, right? That you will hit uh, a punchman faster than he can hit you, for example. Of course, he if he if he uh, if he uh, doesn't have doesn't have his um, uh, musket loaded, right? Mm -hmm. um, so so this the so this bomb was was very effective all against infantry and also against cavalry. And the Polish the Pol the Polish was uh, were were just you know well trained. For the Vistola ones, it was case of the experience of that that this regiment was created in um, in seventeen ninety eight, if I remember. So this was a regiment which existed without a break by the sixteen years, right? So we've got sixteen years uh, of this uh, regiment of experience of fights in Italy. Uh, in Germany, in Spain, in Russia, in, in Germany, in, uh, in 1813, uh, next time. So it was quite, quite, a, quite a big time, you know. Um, and and to Chevalier, it was quite a big role of the French officers and the Polish officers of that regiment, which trained this uh, this unit very well. You know, they just had this luckiness to have uh, an officers like I don't know, like Dotonpur, for example, which shows to be very good officers. And for the infantry, it was similar case, like in uh, Vistula Ulans, I think, that when this uh, Vistula Legion, I mean, infantry of the Vistula Legion was created, there was this basis from this legionary, uh, legionary infantry regiment. So there was some kind of you know, I don't know promotions that veterans became NCOs, NCOs became officers. So it was this this simple line uh, that there was this basis of experienced officers uh, fighting in several campaigns, um, and that's it. And that that's the reason why the units were so effective, and because of the successes. There was the, this fame uh, for for this for these units, both both uh, in the French army and uh, among uh, enemies, right? For Spaniards, for the British, uh, for example. So that's it. Yeah, essentially, what you painted there is a, a very clear picture of competency. You know, these guys knew what they were doing and they did it very well. Um, you, you know, you know, you know. The thing is that after the Napoleonic Wars in several countries, the last unit was created. The best example is the British Army, because um, there were some attempts to create Lancer regiments in the British Army in the 1790s. Uh, the fun fact is that the first attempt was um, proposed by Paul. Uh, it was one of the Polish uh, noblemen, I don't remember his name. But he proposed to form one of uh, one of the regiment, but um, it was formed, if I remember. There was they were even in uh, Flanders, if I remember. By but they they were disbanded or reorganized uh, into some I don't know dragoon or cossack regiment. I don't remember. But uh, on the larger scale, they were created. Uh, I mean, the last of the British Army after 1815, and like I said, they used Polish regulations. They uh, translated from French because this uh, 
uh, manual of plans was in French. And they translated these uh, regulations in, uh, into English and, uh, and they publish it and they use it. But uh, the fact is that they that they didn't become masters of that weapon in, in scale and uh, like force, like right? you know. Right. We can see we can see it for example during the Crimean War, right? right? That this British cavalry uh, also runs a unit. They weren't so effective. Also because of the changes of the, of the battlefield uh, uh, which took place uh, between the end of the Napoleonic Wars and the Crimean War, but also because they, they, they just didn't have this level of training like the Poles had, uh, the Poles had in, uh, in the Polish regiments, right? Okay, so what happens to these guys post-war? And I know that's a horrendous question on which to, to start to wrap things up, but as people have kind of come to be accustomed to by now i am hugely interested in what happens to these guys in the aftermath of conflicts where inevitably they become much harder to trace and a very cheeky side question do we have much um indication of where some of these guys are buried and that's a an rwgc question there for folks who yeah, haven't quite yeah. picked up on the shameless plug that's incoming yeah i mean uh, i think i think it depends it, it depended um we can we can find uh, some few paths for them some of the soldiers especially they which were married to french women stayed in france after 1815 some of them even served in the french Royal army after 1815 um but most of most of them came uh, came back to poland we know that after the Congress of Vienna, the Kingdom of Poland was established, uh, which was ruled by Tsar Alexander, and uh, they and they they resigned or they stayed in the Polish army. And I think that the biggest career had uh, Count Kaczynski, uh, who was the commander of the Chevalier. He became uh, he he was uh, a general of the Polish army. He was promoted. He got he had got some. Uh, some uh, Russian decorations, but in fact, it was he was very unpopular among Polish society because he became a co-creator of the Russian authorities. In fact, um, and he, if I remember, he didn't participate in the November uprising, so it was another reason to be unpopular among the Poles. Um, and we can uh, we can find different stories like I don't know serving uh, in the army, then fighting in the November uprising if they stayed alive. Um, but we can also find some sad stories. Uh, we can also we can find, for example, story of uh, Jan Kozietulski. He was um, a very popular officer because. He was, in fact, the commander of the charge in, uh, in Somosia Gorge. So he was a very famous Polish officer. And after 1815, he stayed, uh, he stayed in the army. He became a uh, commander of one of the Ulan units. And uh, because of it, many, many, many ex-officers and soldiers of the Chevalier became uh, soldiers of this regiment because Kozielewski was a very popular uh, officer. And uh, it was they, they they thought that was some kind of continuation because you know all of these units were disbanded 
uh, after uh, 1814 or 1815. Um, but uh, unfortunately, to Kozietulski, there was no problems. There was uh, a financial affair in the regiment because one of the officers just lost um, big, uh, big money, uh, big, uh, big number of regimental money. So that's why Kozietulski was accused to, you know, participate in it. Um, and uh, he, he, in fact, he probably he, he had kind of depression, I think, and he and he was sick and he died uh, quite quickly. Uh, and we even have some examples, um, you know, because for the Poles, especially from the French army, this change changing of command um, to you know because. Um, Grand Duke Constantine became uh, a commander in chief of the Polish army after after 1814, uh, right? And he and he started to provide uh, a Russian type of discipline in the Polish army, which was of course uh, very different from this discipline which was in the Dutch so Dutch also army and also in the French army. So it was uh, tough to accept it from the uh, many many officers. So there was many resignations after a few years of service in this post-1815 army. And we've got uh, and we've got uh, also few few suicides among Polish officers of the period. Also ex-Chevalier officers. But sad. Yeah. Yeah, we also have this uh, uh, among some ex-Chevalier who committed suicide because of this, you know, how they how how they were threatened by uh, by by Constantine, right? Mm -hmm. So there, a... so 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 there, so they are, so they are all, so they are mostly sad stories, but in Polish history is in general sad. So <laughs> yeah, you know what, you're not wrong. Um, that's that's a, a seems to be a theme. And um... for for and about and about graves, we can say. We can say that there are some of the graves of the ex, uh, ex for example, ex Chevalier. Um, let, let me check it. Uh, here it is. Uh, oh, yes, for example, for example, uh, is buried in Belskoduze. Belskoduze, sorry. So, so his grave still exists. Sorry, where is that? Uh, Belskoduze. It's a it's a village. Uh, it's a village village in Mazovia, in Poland. Krasinski was is buried in Opinogura. Uh, Opinogura was uh, was his property. Uh, it was part of his lands. Okay. Um, there is I'm... there is a there is a palace in Opinogura, by the way. Okay, so folks, if you are in Poland and you find yourself in, in either of those, and, the, and there words, is and there is a museum, by the way, museum of romanticism in Opinogura. Yeah. Okay, so well, there you go, folks. Um, yeah. Interesting thing. Interesting thing is that Krasinski's son was a very popular Polish poet, Polish romantic poet. Okay. There, there, there is, there is even. Um, there is even a uniform, Chevalier uniform for Krasinski Jr. It was kind of, I don't know, a souvenir or something. Hmm. But, 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 but it, it, it still exists. 
you know, you know, it was kind of, I don't know, his father was this commander of the regiment, so this son got this, you know, uniform, child uniform uh, mm -hmm. uh, of his father's uh, regiment, right? So there you go, folks. Um, if you find yourself in either of those next to the woods, there, there are places that you can go to pay your respects, should you feel so inclined. Um, be sure to do a quick site report for the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity whilst you're there. Hashtag add, yeah, hashtag do it, do it, plug. do it, do it. Indeed, indeed. Um, David, it's it's a sad note on which to end, but inevitably, when you're going to talk about legacies of warfare, you're you're going to end up on a, a sad note. Um, but it's been a such an interesting discussion. I've learned vast amounts. I'm sure our listeners would have done too. The very well, I was going to say good luck with your Viva, but you don't need luck as the <laughs> last two hours of podcasting has been a testament to. You've got a vast knowledge on this topic. I have no doubt that you're going to very comfortably walk through that Viva. Um, folks, if you're on Twitter, David is on Twitter at D A W G R A 93. That is at D A W G R A 93. Go give him a follow. David, the soon-to-be, I hope, Dr. David Greylick, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you very much also. Folks, if you're new here, remember to hit the subscribe button so that you can find your way back. Much love to all my Patreon supporters and shout-outs to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, Beatrice de Graaf, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, Jim Getz, Indiana Fats, Stephen Gillen. Rob Coughlin, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meakin, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Noah Fink, Mark Trowbridge, Miles Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, Andrew Wright, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Ulrich Ducado, James Fluick, Roger O'Donnell, Natasha Hobday, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, David Graylick, Ted Andrews, David Malinsky, Richard Anderson, Arthur Forgey, Reto the Sci-Fi Fan, Adam Green, Tim Day, Sam Moore, Wyatt Pollock, Armin Darwin, Carol Dixon-Smith, Paul Gasek, and Roland Shark. And the Admirals, John Haynes, JC Kaiser, Mike Guest, Liam Telfer, Todd and Laird Campbell, Graham Swidenbank, Rachel Stark, Mark Duckers, David Maxwell, David Priest, Graham Callister, Sean Sullivan, Stephen Ashworth, Dan Hazelwood, Kate Walcombe, Steve Carter, and Clemens. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars Pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.